makes it easier for small kids because I tell them my name is Ravioli without the Oli. and foes alike, welcome to another edition of Idea Lemons Discover Your Inner Awesome Podcast. My name is Rajiv Nathan, a.k.a. The Raj Nation. I am the Idea Lemon co-founder and your show's co-host. I am joined, as always, by my co-founder and co-host, Martin McGovern, a.k.a. Marty McFly. This is Discover Your Inner Awesome, the only show where you get to eavesdrop on conversations with entrepreneurs, artists, and musicians about the stories, the journeys, the struggles, but most importantly, the questions. The questions that help us all better understand who we are, what we're doing, and how we can do it better. In this episode, we sit down with Ravi Rao. Now, here's Ravi's story. He is a doctor turned consultant, turned public speaker, turned aspiring actor and screenwriter and where we've got him at today is in his phase of aspiring actor and screenwriter so naturally the question we sit down and explore is how do you redefine yourself now before we get into all that i want to give you a quick reminder and invitation to join our tribe of amazing people over at idealemon.com all you do is enter your email address and you will never miss an episode of this show all right let's dive into our conversation now with ravi rao asking How do you redefine yourself? Let's listen in. You know, redefinition is on my mind because I've just started in the last few months uh, a new definition. I have done a couple of redefinitions before over the last 10 years and then a different one almost 20 years ago. Uh, But right now I'm starting a new one, leaving behind more traditional things uh, and becoming a purple-haired actor in Los Angeles. <laughs> All right. So what's, I guess, give us a little bit on the backstory of what you came from, just previous careers, because I think you, you have a really interesting story here, um, I guess, from is technically the straight path, straight and narrow path, safe path into now purple-haired actor. Yeah, it's a, um, it's funny, you know, when I go to auditions now, I try to actually minimize um, what I used to do before because I don't want people to be confused by it. But what I keep finding is when people find out the path you've been on, they actually are even more embracing of, oh, why the change? And they want to know your story. Uh, as you said, I I started out in very traditional, uh, what people would say are safe paths. I started out in the 90s uh, going to medical school and then starting uh, a clinical residency training. Decided a couple of years in, after just sort of wrestling instinctively with this continual notion of I'm not in the right place, this doesn't feel right, uh, I left medicine and I went to go work at a large consulting firm that was doing some healthcare-related work. And so I came in as a physician with no business background, but was surrounded with MBAs and was sort of the healthcare expert. 
and was doing consulting work for a little while, going from one very traditional thing to another very traditional thing. Uh, after a few years of doing that, I said, you know, this is not really what I think the clients ultimately need. They need someone who can help them implement things and more so even uh, to change culture. So I became a speaker. And so in the last 10 years, I've traveled to five different continents, giving seminars and workshops on the nature of how the brain processes emotion. And people were telling me, oh my gosh, you're so entertaining. Oh my gosh, you're so entertaining. Oh, you're so funny. Oh, I could just listen to you for hours. And I said, well, how was the content? And people would say, eh, it's okay. <laughs> and, and I said, hmm, I'm not in the right place. And so less than a year ago, I decided to move to Los Angeles, uh, did not know anybody in town, and decided, you know, uh, I love making people smile. I love making people cry, if I can, with a touching story. And so I said, this is what I want to do with my life. So I'm 47, uh, starting over at the bottom. Uh, you know, I'm just one of uh, uh, tens of thousands of wannabe actors in Los Angeles, but I'm redefining myself. That, I think that's a really, uh, it's an interesting story in that it's so easy to get comfortable doing what you're doing because you get good at it and because you're satisfying the people around you. But, you know, the crux of what you're saying is, is you weren't satisfying yourself, which I think obviously, which I'd say most people would agree is probably the most important thing at the end of the day. You know, what's so funny about that, absolutely true, is that, I mean, there are some times where everybody agrees somebody's not in the right place. The job's not going well or the role isn't going well and people around you can just sense this isn't right and they'll tell you things like, hey, this isn't working out, you should find something else. And then you wrestle with it inside, but you make the, the change and you say, okay, I had to redefine myself, the other thing wasn't working out. Um, I had faced a different challenge, and I don't know if it's less or more common. It's hard to know the frequency of it, but you know, I was doing the clinical training, and people were telling me, oh, gosh, you're the future of this field. I can just see how you're going to do great research and how you're going to take care of patients, and you're really going to change this. And I kept saying, gosh, I really don't want to do that. And then, you know, to go to the consulting and the speaking route, people would come up to me and say, like, oh, you must be so thrilled with your life and everything must just feel like joyous happiness day after day because you're doing this interesting thing of uh, going around the world talking about something. And I would say, I guess so. And people kept telling me, you should be so happy for all those years, you know, uh, nearly 20 years of my life. And I kept saying, gosh, everybody's telling me how happy I'm supposed to be, and I'm not. Uh, and then finally at 47, I said, well, maybe it's time to try something else. So in, in this sort of search, you're, you're, you're going after happiness, right? And so how did you, you kind of told how people were like, oh, you're funny, you know, keep going down this route. So you got, you know, some nice positive feedback to know what direction to go, but at what point did you make the the decision to move to LA, and and at what point did you uh, go purple, and uh, <laughs> and like what was that week like? Yeah, that's a. Uh, it's interesting. It um, it took something that I didn't 
ever think uh, would lead me to make a change about myself in such a manner. Uh, it was a breakup from a girlfriend. Um, I had stayed in that corporate life um, up until about a year ago and had been not living in Los Angeles. I'd actually, for a short period of time, taken a, a longer-term assignment with a uh, doing uh, consulting for a company in Europe. So I had actually moved to Europe during that uh, period of more than a year. And uh, I was dating a woman. And then my heart got broken. And I said, gosh. And in the midst of that painful episode, this identity of being a performer uh, just exerted itself, finally. It had always been there in the background. I can remember, for example, uh, in medicine, you know, we would go on rounds uh, to see the patients and I could just see somebody was really depressed and I would come back after rounds and just sit at their bedside and sing to them. And, you know, they would get this big smile because who serenades a patient in a hospital? But, uh, you know, I wanted to uh, do things that way. When I was in consulting, um, you know, I remember one time I was uh, at a client project and, um, you know, to amuse the team that was working on it, I said, you know what, our 85-page PowerPoint is superb, but I boiled it down to lyrics that I'm going to sing now to the tune of a village people song. And at first people were like, what the heck is this? And, uh, and then people actually found it amusing. And then when the broader strategy presentation came up later, you could just tell that when certain questions came up, the uh, management team was smiling to themselves, almost chuckling because they were remembering the song in their head. Mm-hmm. So that that entertainment identity wanted to come out before, but it only came out in, in little bursts. It was the, the pain of losing a relationship that I had you know, been with someone for a couple of years that finally just sort of exposed me more emotionally. And that's when the uh, creative sense came through. You know what's funny is the purple hair... Uh, was something I thought about even as a kid. I can just remember like asking a teacher, uh, why is it that hair only comes in blonde or brown or black or gray? Uh, why doesn't it come in blue or green or purple? And I always just thought of that as a question. The purple hair, when I got to LA, was not a plan up front, but it was, um, it was something that I encountered because every time someone would see me as a person of Indian descent. I'm American, but you know my parents are from India. Every time somebody saw me as a person of Indian descent with long white hair, they'd assume that I'm a physics professor or something, you know, scientific like that. And I said, what would it take for people to see me and think, oh, this guy has to be a creative? Uh, and I said, you know, I thought back to that childhood episode about asking why doesn't hair come in blue and green and purple? And I decided to go purple. I did think about blue and green, but in the end, I decided on purple. <laughs> and let's not forget about the redheads out there. And let's not I, forget about I the would, redheads. I would be remiss uh, to not mention that for my roommate. <laughs> You're like, oh, well, I like Barney growing up, so purple <laughs> seems like like the good color. <laughs> You know, what I think is, uh, what I really am kind of latching on to as you're talking and what I relate to personally is the little, like, breadcrumbs of things that were happening along the way to get you to this point of being like, you know what, I'm going to explore entertainment. I'm going to explore acting and screenwriting and everything that you know goes into that. Because hearing you talk about 
your previous experiences as a physician and then as a consultant and then as a speaker, it was always, it seems like the moments of joy were, I mean, I think as you put it, was getting people to smile and figuring out how do I make whatever I'm doing just a little bit more creative or perhaps even a lot more creative in some cases than what is the standard. Uh, it wasn't about how do I, you know, how do I become the best like physician possible in terms of understanding everything about the body and every disease and all that stuff? It was, how do I make people feel better through just like personality and attitude? And that's some of the stuff that I, I relate to personally, because a few months back, Martin and I were having a conversation and he was like, why the fuck haven't you just accepted that you're an entertainer and, and like know that that's who you are. And I could be like, no, but I'm not. And then, but it was, you were kind of pointing that out to me that there's all these things that I was doing across everything we had done together that, that I just, I had done on my own personally. You're like, everything you're doing, like you're trying to get in front of a crowd and make people, uh, and, and elicit some reaction. Yeah, it's always the obvious thing. It's the thing that comes the most easily to us and it's in the back of our head. So we just don't think about it. We're like, no, life is supposed to be hard. I'm supposed to be doing hard things right now. Not, not the thing that comes easy to me. <laughs> Which is, and I wonder why that is that it gets... Right, because like you're saying, like it's easy for someone else to see. It's not easy for the individual to see. What, like Martin? Why do you think that is? Um, because uh, our heads are filled with contradictions. <laughs> <laughs> um, for every, I don't. I I feel like uh, kind of going back to what you were saying. It's like you're supposed to do things like. Oh, I'm I'm supposed to act certain ways around certain people and around certain traditions and around certain thoughts and feelings. And when people see me, they see this thing, and I'm supposed to actually like if someone sees me that way, I need to act on that. Like I need to please people at, to to some extent. And I think uh, when you've got all that going on in your head, it's hard to separate what what is real from what is imagined and from what is expected. Mm-hmm. I agree. I mean, the the frame for so much of what I see things through is watching small kids. And small kids have this, you know, entirely different view of the world than adults do. But then I almost uh, wince in uh, realization and horror when I see them start to lose their childlike perspective. Just as a small example, you know, you'll see uh, on a random playground a bunch of kids who may not even know each other they'll just start playing with each other particularly if they're like three or four they'll just say hey come do this with us even if they've never met them Uh, and then adults start to say no 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 we never play with a stranger and then suddenly all these instincts around connection and awareness and creative bursts and just you know approaching things with energy uh, get changed. You know, this one thing that I learned from a, a teacher, which was so uh, interesting to me, she's a elementary school teacher. She said, you know, if you go into a, a preschool classroom of three-year-olds or four-year-olds and you watch the, the classroom, the, the biggest challenge of, for the teacher to get through a lesson is that the kids keep interacting. They keep hugging, they keep talking, they keep engaging, they keep wanting to have uh, be part of the experience. The moment they get to first grade, what do we do? You sit in your individual desk doing your individual work. And if you interact with another child, that's cheating. 
And so all these instincts that we have to be ourselves from a very young age, people are telling us, stop that. Where do you see, I guess, in that story or in that line of thought of the the kids' way of interaction versus adults' way of interaction, where do you see the... I, I know the chasm is there. There's a, there's a gap, right? You just outlined it. But where do you see that that's happening? Um, and, and, what, and at what point do we start internalizing that and making that the norm? You know, I mean, it's not an instantaneous, they go to a three-day seminar and they, you know, start behaving like automatons. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it works its way into lots of behaviors of childhood. I mean, if you go to the elementary school teacher who teaches fourth or fifth grade, those kids are bullying each other. Those kids are constantly creating hierarchies uh, between themselves and other kids. We start to define ourselves in this very powerless place of most classrooms where there is a highly authoritarian teacher, at least in the traditional model. And, uh, and of course, there are numerous great exceptions, Montessori and other styles of social and emotional learning. But this early stage process that both schools, even to some degree parents and media reinforce, which is children are powerless and they have no rights or control uh, over a lot of things. They can't choose when they eat. They can't choose a lot of things because others are making all the decisions. Uh, then in these classrooms where they're isolated, uh, they try to exert power where they can, either in defiance uh, or in cruelty to others. And so that kind of difficult cascade begins. And then suddenly you grow up, you're 30, you're in a startup or you're in a corporate environment and somebody says, okay, we need a lot of collaboration here. Uh, and then, you know, we haven't done that for 25 years. Uh, so there is a bit of the identity comes back to haunt us, but we can rediscover these, these approaches. And I think acting is the same way. It forces you to look inside and understand how did a character come to be here? Uh, how did this uh, part of the story evolved based on the character's identity and the character's emotion. Uh, Martin from the improv world. So for background, Martin does improv comedy. And I'm curious, the traditional acting world is get to know the character's story and everything. Like really, like, you know, you'll hear Daniel Day-Lewis living that character's life for the three mm -hmm. months before the film starts. And then there's the improv mindset, which is, you learn about it on the spot, and it all happens there. I, I mean, as far as this concept of like identity goes, how do you see those two um, in comparison? Well, it's hard for me to compare to acting since I've not done it, but the, um, the thing in what you're saying there that really sort of stands out to me is the um, when you are creating a character on stage, from what I've been learning, uh, the idea isn't to create a character from scratch that has never existed before. It's to pull from your real life. The more of your real life you can pull into it, the better those characters are going to be because you're not assuming what their lives are like. You're not like, oh, this is a, um, this is a, you know, like an idiot 
Southerner. I, I don't know. Like, whatever the stupid thing is, right? And, like, now I've just offended people. But, um... <laughs> apologize but, to the Southerners. Sorry. All you in the South. Um, but the... But, like, I, I don't know what... Like, I, that's, that's a stereotype. That's not a real person. And they don't, they don't want you to play stereotypes on stage. They want you to play real people on stage. So if you get up on stage and you play a character similar to yourself every single time, but that character has very different, but, but that version that you're seeing right now has a different motivation or a different quirk or a different something about them, it could still sound and look like you. Like, I don't have to be like, like yeah. it could be like, hey, I'm a person. I just have a different motivation than my real life. And I understand motivation, so I understand that this is a different character. It's not me. So it's like an exaggerated version of parts of your personality. So like sometimes you're selfish. Okay, so you can play a really selfish person drawing on the pieces of you that are selfish. Sometimes you're really charitable. So you can play a really charitable, like an exaggeratedly char charitable person based off of the bits of charity you've done in your life. And so it's just kind of keeping it core to what you've experienced and pulling characters from that instead of trying to invent. They, they, never, they always say when you're on stage, don't invent use what's there if you're inventing you're just pulling stuff out of nowhere if you're using what's there you're like okay someone said shoe this world has shoes in it so on and so forth you're not like creating a universe where right. shoes are falling from the sky right right so then how has that mindset or that approach impacted or perhaps not impacted your desire or ability to look at things going on in your own life and self-reflect there is no one thing that i am like that's that at the end of the day like we've taught branding we've taught elevator pitches we've taught all these things and at the end of the day you're you are different versions of yourself around different people like if we're going to talk about performance if we're going to talk about defining who you are as a person like we all act differently around different people. If you hang out with your high school friends, you go back to high school version of you. If you hang out with your parents, you go back to like, oh, like, you know, kid version of you, unless you've redefined that, <laughs> that relationship. If you're hanging out um, with your coworkers or your boss, it's different. Like you act differently, even though there's a constant of you all the way throughout. Like you are still the same, even though sometimes you're louder, sometimes you're quieter, sometimes you're more focused, sometimes you're less focused, sometimes you're interested in the topic, sometimes you're bored. It's all still you, and so what I think is really interesting, and, and what I'm curious to know from you guys, like, in all these different paths that we've all taken, right, bits of ourselves come out in every single situation, right? You said you sat down with the, with the kids and you sang, at, you know, while you were you know, uh, in the residency, right? And, right. And it's just like, that's, that's this part of you coming out in, in that part of your life. And so I, I think that there is just like, there's a commonality throughout all of it. It's just how comfortable are you being yourself in each situation? Like there were times where I was working and I felt like I couldn't be myself. Like I was studying sports and stuff. And like, we've talked about that on the podcast before. Like it didn't go well for me, but if the, if it's a job that allows me to be myself, but is still practical or, or allows me to explore different parts of myself, I still think that that's positively moving you through the world. You know, it's a great point, too, particularly as you were talking about the substitution approach of the acting draw from your own experience. I think if somebody is listening to this and says, you know, I'm struggling and I'm wondering, do I need to redefine myself or I've decided to redefine myself, but I don't know what to or what's next. Uh, 
I think your point is exactly right. Experience already lets you know what the next thing is going to be because it's already tried to come out probably in one way or the other. Mm-hmm. You've done the technical job, but you kept finding yourself uh, you know, drawing things more than kind of writing prose or, or doing math. You kept doing the illustration. Maybe the artistic drawing thing is what's trying to come out. It just hasn't had the right timing yet. Whatever that redefinition is, it's often, as, as both of you said, you know, there's clues to it already in your life experience. Maybe sometimes even like, I don't know why that particular thing happened or why I responded a particular way to it. You know, even may not be aware of ourself that it's trying to come through. But then suddenly the circumstance gets right and everything falls into place. And you say, okay, now is the time for change. It actually probably already is clear what you're going to do next because it's already been happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and I think another part of this too is what is the thing you keep persisting with or what are the elements you keep persisting with even when it's not fun or even when, you know, it's not easy. So I was actually, I was reading an article the other day um, and it talked about the word passion and passion is actually like the Latin root of passion is passi, which means to suffer. Mm. So really what passion means is are you willing to suffer for this? Mm. Not are you willing to do this only when it's fun and easy, but are you willing to do this when it fucking sucks? (laughs) Meanwhile, everyone uses passion as I only want to do the work that I enjoy ecstatically every single day. (laughs) And I don't think there's anything that I enjoy doing every single day. (laughs) I don't know if I can get that one good dump in. Oh, man. <laughs> I know. It just feels good. <laughs> Anyways. Man, tough crowd, Martin. You're, you're usually <laughs> the one throwing those toilets in. Uh, yeah, I'm usually throw, throwing toilets. Did you not drink enough coffee today? Or I, maybe I had too much. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, sorry to bring us back on track. <laughs> With the idea of the passion thing, right? And and that's kind of a big point, Martin, is people will say, like, no, I just, like, I, I'm not going to enjoy blank out of this. You know, uh. You know, yeah, yeah I, I like singing, but I don't want to... Practice. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, okay, then admit that it's just something you like. It's not a passion of yours. And, like, and stop fooling yourself, because I think that's where a lot of people get tripped up in, like, where do I go next? What do I do? Yeah. Is they they come up with something, or they, have, they take a talent they have, they convince it with the fact that it is a passion, but then they only... Project it 10 years in the future. Project it 10 years in the future. And for whatever reason, I think because it's a new thing, the first place our mind goes, excuse me, the first place our mind goes is what are all the things I lose as a result of doing that? Or what are all the bad things? Like Instead of focusing on the three good things, what are the 10 bad things I can come up? Like the other day um, when I was talking about the, the video editors that were in the other room, Martin, mm-hmm. and I was like, does something like that interest you? Like, like they're coming from a news magazine. They're shooting. They're shooting all day here. They're going to edit it later, and it'll go online. And like your reaction, I can't remember what specifically you said, but your reaction was, "No, but uh, I don't want to spend ten hours a day editing." And then I, after some conversation, I was like, "I'm inter- I'm surprised you didn't adopt the improv mindset there of yes and." And the first thing you said was, "Let me take the extreme negative of this situation and make that the the prevailing thought." Yeah, I. Part of it is that, and part of it is also. What, just because it is an opportunity doesn't mean it's a good opportunity. Like, not every person is the right person to talk to. So the question back is, why are like, 
why are those people to talk to, right? And so I don't know who they are. I don't know what they were shooting for. I don't know what any of the context was. So my immediate reaction was like, I don't know who those people are. I don't want to. I don't want that to distract me from what I'm trying to figure out right now. And so I think that that is a a, a pretty normal reaction to new a new thing being brought into the situation where I was trying to cut things out. Like what I'm going through right now is trying to narrow focus into something. And I think we live in a world where there's unlimited opportunity to reach and talk and learn and do anything. And so at some point, yes, I agree with you. It's like you need to be able to talk to people and you need to be able to explore and you need to be able to go and, and check these things out. Um, but not everything is the right thing to do. So like I've been talking with video people for the past three weeks. I've been editing videos and I've been working on videos. I'm part of an email chain. I'm doing editor versus editor and I've created a video a day for the past three and a half weeks. And I feel like that has given me all the information I need to make that decision. Yeah, uh, a couple of things. Um, I would be careful about saying having all the information you need because that can be a that can be a limiting mindset long term. Two, um, everything you're saying is fair. That was an example I was using, not necessarily saying you had to go talk to those people. Uh, that's an example, but I, I to to say the larger thing that I think happens with people is, and we've seen this a ton with people we work with. I have this idea. Oh, but let me talk about the ten things that it's going to take out of my life if I pursue this idea or. What are all the things I can't do now? Or, or let me convince myself that it's not worth pursuing because of the work I'd have to put in to get there. And that is what, you know, we're talking about redefining yourself. That's where I see, and, and Ravi, let me know if you've experienced the same thing, maybe with your own thoughts or just from talking to other people. Uh, that's where I think a lot of people, they sell themselves short and they stay with the thing they're doing that makes them unhappy because, well, A, it's effort to do something different and new. But on top of that, even though we know it's effort, we look at what is like what are the bad things that are going to result from it instead of looking at what's a scenario where everything goes well. Well, and just to kind of add on, I think the highest level of of that I want to add to this conversation is both of the examples that you're giving are about talking about things versus doing them. Hmm. So I don't think at the end of the day it matters one way or the other if you're saying oh i'm going to go talk to people about the things that i want to do or i'm going to talk about the things that are going to stop me from doing what i want to do the question is did you try it today did you do it today and how did you feel while you did it but don't you think that because sometimes talking to people about it is part of the doing right like that's what sales is you're talking about what you have like I've had, like I've had five conversations. Well, so let's this let's week about, like talking to someone about acting versus actually going and acting. Which which do you do? I mean the the question for me in terms of pursuing the actual doing of things, uh, the hard part for me, I can only speak about me. Although I know other people, some other people have the same challenges. Um, we can always do the intellectual pros and cons. We can always do the, you know, what's the return on the investment if I do it this way or this way or take this path or use this option or make this partnership. That intellectual kind of decision-making thing, I think that's good and it's valid. The thing that I struggle with is um, fear will make me irrational. 
you know, if I sit down and do the logical thing, clearly I should do X, but fear will prevent me from it. In fact, fear ends up being the real root cause of my mindset to tell myself the 10 reasons why it won't work. So I try to force myself to say, okay, uh, acknowledge that fear is actually coming into play here. Try to do something about that, whether that's, all right, go have a nice meal, go for a nice walk, try meditation, go on the treadmill, do something that actually changes my physiology out of that uptight, stressed physically sick to my stomach nervousness and then once I'm in a sort of better physical state and I can acknowledge that fear is there then at least I can be a slightly more rational I think people keep themselves in bad situations um, or pick the wrong choices because fear is is motivating it as opposed to what's really the best thing to do mm -hmm. I want to come back to I, I don't I just don't think we see eye to eye on this Martin because which is fine but well, I, just, I, I don't know if you meant it to come across this way but it sounds like you're saying don't talk to people about the things you're trying to do no I'm talking to people about the things I want to do but I'm also doing them yeah okay so like I didn't, yeah it's coupled I didn't, with like, with action it's the, talk with action yeah it's talk and action but like I I think I know from the actions that I take what the next step is and what's necessary and so. It was one of those things where it was like adding new, new information that didn't need to be added, in, in my opinion, mm -hmm. in that situation. I mean, it's also, it's also partly a self-protective mechanism. If you're talking to people and getting some input and guidance, yeah, talk to a lot of people. When you're talking to people and they feel like their first instinct is to judge, criticize, or undermine you, I think it's, you know, it's it's a different dynamic then and you just have to sort of shield yourself from going down the wrong path simply from one or two or even five people's negative reactions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, and I love what you said about fear because that is ultimately when you're trying to redefine yourself, why are we even doing it? It's Or why didn't we redefine ourselves the correct way in the first place? Like when we talk about all these shoulds and we talk about all these and we talk about pleasing others and we talk about doing the the right thing or the safe thing or the risky thing or whatever it is it usually at the end of the day comes down to some sort of mental block for me at least of like i'm scared that i'll be perceived a certain way or i'm scared that uh what i go create let's say being creative like i'm scared that the dramatic reading that i'm going to post online of the book from the guys who I just saw speak from Google. Like, I'm gonna tag them in the tweet and show them the video, and uh, they may hate it. <laughs> like, <laughs> like that, that scared me when I hit send, but at the end of the day, you know, overcoming that fear, I think, and overcoming that fear and taking the action tells you so much more than any amount of, of talking about redefinition can. Sing it, FDR. <laughs> yeah, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Oh, hey, how about that? <laughs> Gotta get up on that history. <laughs> um, continuing on that theme of fear, Ravi, can you talk a little bit about, you know, we know you've, you've, you've brought up, you went from the physician to the consultant to the speaker, now to the uh, entertainment life. Um, with each of these identities, more or less, how big was the cultural voice in your head as far as expectations go and what you're supposed to be doing? You know, my parents are immigrants from India. So 
from a young age in Chicago growing up in the 70s, uh, I understood that people had a tendency to look at me and say, oh, you're Indian, you must, and then they would come in with their own laundry list of predetermined attributes. Some of them might be correct and some of them might not, but it, it had less to do with me being Indian than to be an individual. Um, whether that was, oh, you're an eight-year-old from India, you must love spicy food. Uh, and that one actually, you know, I've always had a bit of uh, difficulty absorbing spicy food, just the nature of my gastrointestinal genes, you know. Uh, and then other people would be like, oh, and then they would come up to me and start talking to me in the Indian language of Hindi. And my parents are from South India, so I understand one of those languages, but I didn't know any Hindi. And again, it was just this, let's look at a person and then determine who they are. At first, I kept trying to rebel at it, you know, at when I was eight or 10. Then I understood that that left me isolated. It left me lonely. And so my fundamental fear would be I'd be all alone. So I tried to do more things that were in keeping with that cultural expectation. So periodically uh, in high school, this was way before Instagram or Twitter or any or Facebook or anything. But for me in high school in the 80s, you know, periodically on the weekends, my parents would say, okay, come do an Indian cultural thing. Um, and I would dress up in traditional Indian clothes. And, you know, it wasn't necessarily my own fashion choice, but I said, okay, I can fit in. Um, and I took on some elements to understand what that part of my ancestry meant for my own identity. But it's funny to me in 2016 when people come up to me you know, even with the purple hair or whatever, uh, and then just start talking about their favorite Bollywood movie or their, you know, <laughs> favorite tourist site in India that they went to. And I'm like, oh, that's nice. And then they're like, oh, so how many Indian languages do you speak? I'm like, oh, I can sort of get by in one South Indian one, but I'm much better in German and Swedish. <laughs> and they're like, what? You know, so the cultural thing is always hard uh, because... It's one thing to redefine yourself if you're in the majority culture where people are allowed to have diversity, right? Because we don't say all Caucasian people are attribute X, right? We, we allow for diversity because they're a majority population. They have, uh, you know, the benefit of large numbers. And in the same way, Indians in India or Chinese in China, they have diversity because they're the majority culture. But uh, when you're uh, a... Um, a group of lesser proportion of the population, people quickly uh, assume that there are a consistent set of attributes that describe everyone in the class. And uh, it's just not the case. Yeah. So I, I kind of vie with you on a few things there in that um, my parents are both immigrants from India. I think I got, I think I got like a luck of the draw because they've always been pretty cool with the things I've explored and do. Um, they never really said don't do it. They were just always like, you know, balance it by making sure like you get a degree and can stand on your own two feet, which I think is a good mindset to have or a good approach. Uh, and I also don't think they knew because they are not, um, you know, trained in any type of art or anything like that or creative field. They don't. They, I don't think they knew how to encourage that side of me either. And to be honest, I don't know if at the time, like I'm thinking growing up, like right around high school is when I started to to write raps and like, you know, make songs. 
And I don't even know if at the time if I knew like what I wanted it to grow into. And I don't even know if they had said like, hey, take a class on learning how to play guitar if I would have even said yes. Because, and I'm just thinking like identity at that time. Like I think it's a crime I never got into theater in high school. Because just given, you know, what I enjoy now, I think I would have really excelled at theater. But you know what theater meant in high school? And, you know, at that time it was what, like early oh, 2000s? Yeah. And, <laughs> oh, you must be gay if you do theater, right? Mm-hmm. And and then, like, so that's why I didn't do theater. Um, <laughs> Meanwhile, like... Everyone who's who's an actor and, does, does theater. Well, everyone's in theater. <laughs> and everyone who's in theater, it's like the band geeks from uh, right. American Pie or something. Yeah. Right. And... The same thing with, like, I remember even in elementary school, I think my parents did say, like, why don't you, like, try violin or something like that? And I was like, no, like, that's for nerds. I don't want to play violin. So I think it's it's even, it's not even cultural at that point. It's, like, the culture I was immersed in, you know, American culture, I just was picking out the things that I was like, no, that's not the norm, so let me go with the norm. And then back on the Indian cultural side of things, I think if my parents had been, you know, trained in some art, they would have known how to encourage me there. But then I don't think I explored it further on my own until, you know, the past few years because no one in my, you know, immediate family is really like in an artistic field. So it wasn't in my field of vision that this is, you know, that something, you know, music or theater or anything like that is a possible career path. And I think that's how we make a lot of our decisions is what do we actually see in front of us? Because that becomes the world that you live in. And even like, you know, entrepreneurship was not in my scope at all, even through college. But then we start doing things and you see, oh, there are a lot of people that I meet now who are doing entrepreneurial things. And then, oh, let's go to this open mic. Wow, there are a lot of other people who do music as well. And then that becomes your reality, which then... Oh, it makes it okay for you to say, you know what, why don't I explore that piece further? To this point, I just do want to give a shout out to all the high school teachers out there who allow young people to have flexibility in how they're going to define themselves. Um, I was in high school in the early to mid-80s, and my senior year of high school in suburban Chicago at uh, St. Joseph High School in Westchester and um, the accompanying nearby school, Immaculate Heart of Mary, um, we had our annual uh, school musical uh, in the spring, and we decided to do The Sound of Music. And uh, just to tell a, a, sh- a short anecdote, there was a bit of controversy about who would play Captain Von Trapp because there were a couple of guys who were sort of tall, Caucasian had the look, you know, at least that we could understand, like, okay, it's a tall white guy, that's who Captain Von Trapp is. Uh, But they didn't necessarily feel as comfortable with the singing. Um, And maybe not even on the acting so much, but they they had the look. And a very courageous nun, who's uh, subsequently now uh, deceased, but she said, no, I'm going to make the short Indian guy Captain Von Trapp. And so in 1986, the Immaculate Heart of Mary and St. Joseph High School production of The Sound of Music had this, you know, five foot five uh, Indian guy where they spray painted some gray onto my hair. Um, Always with the colors. (laughs) Always with the colors. But, you know, that allowed me to say it is okay to be something, you know, this this nun, Sister Joyce. uh, And then uh, a couple of the teachers were like, you know, why can't we have a... Uh, non-Caucasian Captain Von Trapp in our own school production of something. So um, 
you know, that allowed me to say, maybe not in 1986, maybe not right now, but, um, you know, the world will someday accept that there can be uh, people defining themselves in ways other than what traditionally has been expected. That's an interesting piece because I actually think with a lot of uh, theater or even just like role playing, that plays a huge, or, you know, not to repeat the same thing, but that plays a huge role in determining who's going to get what part or what you can or can't do. And that's interesting that in the 80s that, that was, you know, that the nun who was leading that was able to pull that off and, and you were able to get that, that position. Because I even think of like, you know, a few years back, I was Hulk Hogan for Halloween and like I would be walking down the street in costume and like some people were like, hey, I didn't know Hulk Hogan was, was Indian. And like my reaction was, I was like, well, first off, I'm closer to his skin tone than you are. <laughs> <laughs> and second, I'm like, it's a costume. What the hell do you care? Yeah. I mean, there is um, an emotional factor for a lot of people that the world is already volatile, uncertain, and complex and ambiguous. So that initiates in them a kind of constant fear every day when they wake up and go out into the world. These people who are like, why is that guy so aggressive in his driving, in his interactions, in his, you know, just his demeanor? Why is he so aggressive? Often it's because he's scared to death. And things like a person of Indian descent dressing as Hulk Hogan or a person of Indian descent being a Captain Von Trapp in The Sound of Music, this just adds to their discomfort about the uh, departure of the world from everything that was true of the 1930s or 40s or 50s. Yeah, and I mean, that's the stuff that uh, some of the controversy around Hamilton, ding, 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 weekly Hamilton reference got it in, <laughs> uh, is the fact that it's, in, you know, it's an all-minority cast for well, you know, probably 95% minority cast. And people are like, oh, George Washington wasn't black. Like, this is, you can't be doing this. But then, and I think it's all like relative to the times, right? Because then you go back to Shakespearean times and women were played by men. Right. And that was what, like, you know, women just shouldn't, weren't supposed to be on stage, which is Shakespearean love, amazing movie. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't seen that one. I've seen I've seen the weird so remake of Romeo good. and Juliet with like Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio, where they talk in Victorian English, but they have handguns. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a trip. John Leguizamo. <laughs> so I think that's just you know it's it's what's happening in the times that like like they, it's not like that's a new argument is what I, is I guess what I'm saying. It's new in the context of having I guess a minority play a traditionally white character, but that type of debate in one form or another has always been going on. And even like, you know, you have to look at theater. It's like, oh, women don't have a spot in the workplace. Wait, no, yes, they do. Oh, women don't need to be C-level executives. Yes, they do. And then, and so on and so forth. So it's, it's like, there's always this struggle of what is, what's the cultural expectation of the time versus what's the, what's the thing that's butting heads with it right now? I mean, we've, we're, uh, I mean, we've been living in the last decade in times that have, broken from uh, definitional traditions, right? We've had an African-American president. We've had uh, a female nominee now for president. We've had uh, lots of things that fundamentally challenge uh, our traditional notions that may feel stable. I mean, uh, if I'm remembering right, not this year's that just happened, but last year's Emmy for Best Comedy Series went to Transparent. 
uh, on Amazon, which is the story of a grandfather who decides to, you know, um, finally uh, adopt his uh, feminine identity and, you know, becomes transgendered at the age of 60. So that, you know, our whole notion of, you know, what was traditional and had to just be, you know, swallowed and accepted, um, we're okay with changing that, with uh, questioning that. That's what allows me to, you know, uh, though I'm just starting out, you know, the the feedback I've gotten from different directors and writers that I've met in town, some of, of some note, you know, has been very positive. Like, I love the hair. I can totally see you being in a sitcom. So, you know, keep at it. So that wouldn't have happened in 86. So then as we um, kind of wind this conversation down, we're bringing it back to this idea of redefining yourself. Um, I want to, I want to just ask one more thing around kind of the, the identity you're coming from. Uh, And that, so when you, in your public speaking life, correct me if I'm wrong, but you were talking to companies uh, about, neuroscience of happiness was it neuroscience of emotion neuroscience of emotion okay so what i'm curious about here is given the material you were talking about at the time were you also then reflecting back on how that applied to yourself or were you just kind of like in the moment and not even thinking about is there it's kind of like a a paradox here that you're talking about neuroscience of emotion and then you find yourself unhappy in what you're talking about it's it's a it's an interesting reflection. I think the manner in which I delivered that content for 10 years uh, was a reflection of me. Even if the content itself was like, this is this part of the brain and it does this. And when this part of the brain is activated, this neurotransmitter comes out. And that's why when you have been sleeping, but you don't feel rested afterwards, it's this chemical. You know, that was the content. But the way in which I delivered it was uh, my authentic self coming out, which was, you know, I would start out with some kind of humor. Uh, I would engage in storytelling about uh, different episodes I'd either been a part of or witnessed. And then, you know, encourage people in the audience to actually share in their own reflections. And uh, I was not one of those guys who made people fall backwards or something like that. Uh, you know, so other people would catch him doing the trust fall thing. But I was one of those guys who tried to use humor and storytelling and connection uh, between me and the audience to actually then help them to create connection with each other. And so the, you know, one could hear like, oh, very scientific, former physician is coming to speak about the brain and the neuroscience of emotion. And, you know, one could imagine lots of slides with technical charts and details to uh, support it. And I had the details to support it. But even the style of delivery was this performer trying to come out. That's interesting. I want to do like a one word answer thing here real quick. Um, So you said, Ravi, that the authentic self of you was coming out in that, like, let me get, let me draw a reaction of humor out of the audience. Let me use that. And let me tell stories off of that basis. Martin, you are, you've been working heavily over the last couple of years to infuse humor in all that you do. Uh, I've been working more on, I mean, humor in a sense, but how do I connect people and bring the entertainment side to, you know, normally boring things. Um, but we've all had these points in our lives, as we've pointed out, where 
we didn't really feel like we were so you know, as much in sync with that. And I want to just you know like gut reaction, like one word response, um, Martin. The the times when you did not feel you could do that. What's like how, what's the one word description of how you felt? Trapped. Trapped. Ravi, what's your one word description for when you couldn't be that authentic self? Downfall. Downfall. Mine is, I guess mine's not one word, it's three words. <laughs> mine's a paragraph. <laughs> I'd like to uh, <laughs> sing it to you in <laughs> a rap. Mine's hyphenated. <laughs> Mine, mine's out of place. Um, Martin, why did, you, why did you pick trapped? Um, I picked trapped because I felt like I was two, two sides of it. One, I was trying to be someone I wasn't, like studying studying. <laughs> Studying the sports games and uh, trying to sound like I knew what I was talking about. And then um, having ideas go through my head that I would have to shut down and not take action on. Like now I want to do dramatic reading. I do a dramatic reading. I just don't care if it makes me look stupid um, because I know I'm smart enough to overcompensate for the, <laughs> the ridiculousness. And so um, I felt like I was censoring myself and I felt like I was trying to be someone else. So I felt trapped in that in between and then i got out which is nice ravi why did you pick downfall you know when i was in the wrong things on a work level i continued to perform you know uh, reasonably well but every time i was away from the work setting i was finding ways to be self-destructive whether it was emotionally self-destructive from a isolating myself, physically self-destructive, like drinking too much, uh, socially self-destructive, like uh, just finding ways to just run away from things. And even if I had been in commitments to friends or organizations or events I promised to help with, I just excluded myself because Fundamentally, there wasn't a lot of joy happening because I was in the wrong place. And what I could tell was, uh, although it had not reached the level of um, requiring inpatient institutionalization or anything, I mean, I was clearly uh, teetering on you know, suicidal stuff even. Um, it was that bad. I don't think my family even knew about it, my parents or my sibling. Um, I don't think friends even really understood how profound being in the wrong place was hard for me. Now, some people might say, come on, that's nothing. You're not in Aleppo, you know, getting bombed at, or you're not in Central Africa worrying about warlords and, and famine. True. Uh, but for me, uh, this uh, need to be the person I am and then sort of not doing that for decades uh, led to this, you know, uh, imminent downfall. Uh, probably death would be the other word. Hmm. Um and, uh, you know, it took, amazingly, it took other people pointing out to me uh, that I was on this downfall path. And so when they finally did, um, I said, oh, you're right. And I had to ask myself, well, why is that? And then that part of my life was about the process of beginning self-reflection. Interesting. I picked out of place. I, I had like one specific time in mind, which was, um, the last few months when I uh, worked at an ad agency, um, there was like a two-month period where I was put on a performance plan. 
a performance improvement plan. And really prior to that, I always, it was a company where I always felt like I could be myself. I could, you know, do creative things and they were cool. Like they had me like introduce the CEO one year at a conference doing my Obama impression. They asked me to like write a rap about our analytics software. So like they, like they enabled that in a lot of, or enabled the creative side of me, which was great. But then when I got put on that performance improvement plan, I just felt like I was under this like watchful eye 24 seven and that everything I had to do had to be just exactly how everyone else does it. And there was no room to like make a joke or no room to do the things that I thought were creative that helped things along. Um, and I just, that, that was where I was, it was almost like I was handcuffed. Maybe that's a better word than out of place. It was, it was a feeling of a handcuffed, which is very similar to, mm-hmm. to trap and even downfall. Yeah, it's hard to go to the bathroom when you're handcuffed, too. So you can't have that either. <laughs> there, there's, there's, there's your poop joke. Yeah. I've been, I've been waiting, yeah. waiting for a moment. There's your, there's your, your weekly quote. I get Hamilton as the weekly quote. You get poop jokes as the weekly quote. <laughs> All right, so we got to wrap up. Before we do, Ravi, let our listeners know um, where they can find you and what you're working on. Sure. I'm uh, both on Twitter and Instagram uh, at Ravi Actor Writer, all one word. Um, right now, I am in LA doing auditions, working on both a drama uh, for television as well as a drama for uh, film. Uh, you know, just starting those processes and would love to meet other actors, writers in LA or elsewhere. Uh, find me on social media. And if you want to hear about the neuroscience of emotions, happy to talk about that too. <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right. So then to wrap up, we'll go one by one, starting with Martin and Ravi closing with you. Martin, our question today, how do you redefine yourself? I think that you redefine yourself by understanding how you are in different social situations and around different people, and most especially how you are by yourself. Um, If you are constantly distracting yourself with video games or going out or filling your schedule or whatever the thing is, drinking anything, right? If you're constantly distracting yourself because you don't want to actually have to sit down and think about who you are and what you're trying to accomplish, you're never going to get there. So cut out the distractions, or at least this is what I did for myself. I cut out all the distractions, um, sat with who I am alone, perceived or paid attention to who I was around other people, and then found the common thread through it all. My answer for how do you redefine yourself? I think it's that breadcrumbs idea. Um, Across all the things you've done, there's some way you've gone about it. Uh, you know, it's, it's the how, right? It's, there, there's something that you keep defaulting to that you probably don't see. And I think you, what, how you can find those breadcrumbs is by talking to the people you've interacted with. Like the other day I had lunch with our friend Corey and he was like, you know, he's like, you know, I've seen you live. I've seen you do workshops, I've seen you talk in front of an audience. And I've seen you like on recording like doing educational stuff through our course. And he was like, and it is just like, it's head and shoulders so much better, like uh, seeing you live. Like you've got the presence, you know how to get people excited. What and- are you talking on this podcast for? <laughs> get out there. Um, he's, like, he's like, there's something about you that like you're able to do live that just works really well. And I was like, wow, thanks. You know? And I had gotten to a point where I was like, 
I, I think I've realized that about myself, but then it's even just that like reaffirmation of it is great. But I didn't even know that really about myself until having those conversations, you know, months prior. Mm -hmm. So I think it's finding those breadcrumbs, but, but find the breadcrumbs by talking to the people who do interact with you. Exactly. Yeah. Ravi, how do you redefine yourself? The key to redefining yourself is to sit down in uh, a quiet room uh, and ask yourself, uh, very reminiscent of what both of you have said, uh, to sit down in a quiet space without distraction and ask yourself, what are you really afraid of? Um, once you know what that is, then the process of figuring out who you really are uh, comes out easier. But it's not until you ask yourself that incredibly difficult question, what am I really afraid of? Because that's whatever that is, however unspoken or unclear it's been in my mind, uh, it's guiding far too much of my behavior. And so once you figure that out, then the definition part is a consequence and it comes much easier. Awesome. And blue or red hair, green yeah. hair. <laughs> that's also yeah. change, change your hair color, get a haircut, one of those two. That's, that's, that's also yes. you redefine yourself. Not red, that's a real color. <laughs> <laughs> Robbie Rao, thank you for joining us and kudos for, for going for it, man. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for this opportunity. Absolutely. That wrapped up our conversation with Ravi Rao. Ravi, thank you so much for joining us and exploring and sharing your story and where you plan to take things. Best of luck as you move forward. Did you, the listener, enjoy this episode? If so, the best compliment you can give us is a rating and review on iTunes and subscribing on whatever player and platform you listen to, whether that's SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or the various other podcasting platforms. When you rate and review us and you subscribe, more people get to find the show, therefore more people can discover their inner awesome. For full references, resources, and topics discussed in this episode with Ravi, you can find our complete show notes over at idealemon.com. That'll do it for this one. Thank you again to Ravi Rao for being our guest. For Martin McGovern, I am Rajiv Nathan. You have been listening to the Discover Your Inner Awesome podcast. We will see you next time. But in the meantime, take care. And be awesome today. Welcome to the party, we bout to get it on. Leave your worries at the door, we bout to get gone. Bacardi Lamont in the bone, give me some dome. Perry on, smoking the strong, give me Patron in the zone. Shorty that I'm dancing up on, the snake charmer. She made my black snake moan, I gotta have her. See her, then I grab her. She turned me to a body snatcher. Dude thought he had her. At the party where she left with the dine at the party after. The party don't start to the after party. When your life is a party, you don't have to party. So knowing when I'm waking, I'm taking a couple shots My life's a celebration Here's the toast to party people in the nation